Welcome everyone to the Yonsei Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Michelle. And we'll be your host for today's episode. As members of Nikkei Rising, the young adult branch of Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages, we'll be bringing you roundtable discussions with young adults involved in and around the Japanese American community to honor our community's history and explore its implications today. Today's episode, we'll be speaking with Kiku Hughes. Kiku is an illustrator and cartoonist based in the Seattle, Washington area. Her first graphic novel, Displacement, tells the story of a fictional Kiku who is transported back to World War II to see her grandmother's story of incarceration. Welcome to the Yonsei, Kiku. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to have you today. So I think as an author and as a writer, I guess one of the most obvious questions to start off with is how did you get into writing? You know, um, I actually never considered myself a writer before writing Displacement. I was an English major in college, and I loved reading, and I also loved drawing, but it took me a long time to sort of realize how to make those two work together in a way that uh, I guess I could express myself more clearly, because I never felt very confident in my writing. But being able to do comics sort of helped me sort of feel a little bit more confident confident because I was able to use a medium that I was more comfortable with to tell a story visually. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting. I think for a lot of folks, I guess, because a lot of my friends and I, even myself, I know we've all sort of thought about writing and dabble in writing in different ways. And especially, I think for those of us who have this connection to the incarceration to this history. So I guess in that similar vein, was the incarceration sort of a inspiration to get into, into the writing and into that visual art? Or... Did that just come naturally as part of going into that medium? Yeah, I I had been making comics for a little while before I started working on Displacement. And they were always really short, like seven to ten pages. But uh, certainly it was a story that I had kind of had in my head for a long time, this sort of exploration of the lasting impact of incarceration. And, And not even just incarceration, but of racist uh, trauma in America and the way that later generations sort of retrace our the steps of our of our ancestors, I guess, and have to sort of reverse engineer culture in that way has always been really interesting to me. But the story or the sort of concept of displacement really came together during the 2016 election when, you know, the sort of racist rhetoric that was happening during the Trump campaign prompted a lot of Japanese Americans to be more vocal about our history, about the history of Japanese American incarceration. And sort of seeing more people talk about that and become really involved in present day activism and make that link between our, you know, our history and the present, you know, movement to sort of end concentration camps entirely in the country. It was very inspiring to actually sit down. It inspired me to sit down and actually like turn this sort of nebulous idea of, you know, the lasting impacts of camp into an actual book. So yeah, I think the 2016 election was a big catalyst, but it was always something that I was really interested in. That's amazing. And and I love the way that the medium that you chose as, as a graphic novel really makes that story more accessible as well, and potentially, I guess, more digestible for young readers. And I know, I suppose you, you consider yourself maybe a, a, a youth author or I guess who who is your main kind of target audience and what do you consider when you're writing these stories? 
Yeah, I do think, you know, graphic novels are a great way for reluctant readers and younger readers to get engaged in the story for sure. But I also am a big believer that kids and younger readers are able to understand and, and absorb media that a lot, you know, that we may not, I think we underestimate kids in a lot of ways. And I think kids are really prepared for for media that tackles subjects like this, if, if we allow them to sort of explore it at their own pace and, and in their own way. So I don't necessarily consider, uh, you know, writing for younger kids as being hugely different than writing for a general audience, because I really think kids are able to handle a lot more than we give them credit for. But I think I think you're right that comics help make that a lot more accessible, especially for younger readers. But one thing that I do think is is really cool about using comics as a storytelling medium specifically for Japanese American incarceration stories is the fact that ever since the very beginning of, of sort of telling this story, it's been a very visual medium because one of the first books published after camp by a Japanese American was Citizen 13660 by Mina Okubo, which was an illustrated diary of her time at Topaz and Tanfrin. And it was essentially a comic. So it was, you know, from the very beginning, comics have been kind of, and, and this sort of illustrated narrative has been, you know, a foundational to telling the story, um, which I found really inspiring when I was researching. Yeah, it seems like that imagery would also make that story come to life even more and make it feel almost more more real and you kind of get maybe a, a stronger sense of what that story looks like or what that time period looked like. So that's really interesting to consider as well. Yeah, and especially since, you know, photographs were not allowed by inmates and carceries at, at first, at least not for a few years. A lot of the a lot of times the only visual evidence that we have of what the conditions were like, of what certain parts of camp were like, we only have that as drawings. And it really sort of emphasizes the importance of art and of illustrating as medium. And I, you know, I always like to talk about this whenever people kind of try to say that graphic novels are not real books or whatever. It really is, you know, the medium can be so important, especially in situations that a lot of people these days can't even imagine. So yeah, I like to sort of point that out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And sorry, one of the other things I was considering is when those images or, or drawings come from a person of Japanese American descent or come from someone who has a personal connection to the incarceration, it, I think that is more meaningful than having maybe just a book where a reader who may not have a, a connection to the incarceration may just be imagining, you know, what that looks like, but having someone with that connection showing what that looks like and demonstrating that a little bit more can be really impactful too. Yeah, I think to that point, sort of one of the ways that I, I went about planning the story of displacement was really taking the moments that I had heard about growing up, you know, part of the, the story of displacement is that, you know, there's so much that we don't hear about growing up because so much of the story of incarceration was never passed down or was never shared by, you know, the Issei and Nisei. But w the parts that were shared through, you know, all the way down the generations to Yonsei, I knew were impactful and I knew were important. So those were ones that I knew I had to include. And that those were things that were, you know, purely kind of a 
not superficial, but things like the dust, how dusty it was, you know, always hearing about that. That was a big part of it. So I, I incorporated dust as like a unifying feature that really lets the reader and lets the character know that she is traveling through time because that dust was such a huge part of the story. And, and, and it seems so little, I think. But as I was researching, every story throughout, you know, not even just at Topaz, but in the Midoka and at other camps, dust was always a huge part of that story. And I think, you know, that's something that you get in the community. You don't necessarily understand the importance of if you don't have that sort of community connection. Right. And I think... I mean, for my grandfather and his family, like they were at Gila River, which again is a very dusty, desolate place. And I think it's so interesting how we have these ties to desert and dust and this idea of like desolation and things. And people don't always realize that the camps were in such desolate and dis- places no one else wanted to be in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's it's really cool to use that as sort of a storytelling device. Yeah, I was just going to say like, that the image that stands in my mind from my grandfather's incarceration experience was being at Tanfran Assembly Center in basically horse barracks, or at least some of the incarcerates were literally in, in horse stables and barracks and being just surrounded by all the dirt. And just that that's kind of the image that stands sticks with me a lot too, is just kind of maybe it's not dust, but it's, it's something else. It's, there's just really that, that image that, can really stick in in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, if I had a hundred more pages to draw, um, I would have loved to include sort of more about that that weird feeling of sort of the the weird sense of place. Because when you mentioned the horse stalls, I think about how Tanfran now is a shopping mall that has this Mm -hmm. big sculpture of a horse because it used to be a racetrack. And I think across the street is a little plaque about the incarceration camps or the assembly center, but the horse is like this big sculpture and like just sort of the, the, the weird way that I guess consumerism and commodification conflict with sort of this known history is really interesting to me. And I wish I could have explored more about that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think it's interesting, too, because for me, being out in L.A., like Santa Anita is the same way, like where where the barracks were and where the assembly center was, there is now a mall there. And the yeah. racetrack still exists. And there is, again, a little plaque, but it's very, very small. And then you have, of course, the giant statue of Seabiscuit right in the middle of the, of everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And the I, I'm in Seattle now, which is not where my grandmother lived, but you know there obviously was a Japanese American community that was displaced here as well. And the camp, the assembly center that they went to, is still the location of the state fair. So you know, roller coasters and uh, all kinds of like farm activities, and then you know maybe tucked away in a corner is sort of a little memorial. <laughs> Right. I think that's, and I think sadly, that's the same for, for a lot of the assembly centers and even the campsites today. I mean, there a lot of them are under National Park Service and do have those places dedicated to them. But there are still a lot of them that unless you really knew what was there, you would have no idea that it was home to tens of thousands of Japanese Americans 80 years ago. Right. And, and the towns surrounding them are still so mm-hmm. small that it's, you know, it's not a place that people go unless they're specifically going looking for that you know, memorial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, unless you're 
looking for that plaque or the memorial, you may not see it. Right. Yeah. And I did want to backtrack a little bit because I meant to ask you earlier, but I did want to ask how, because everyone I think has a different story of how they learned about the incarceration, especially as we get further into the generations, Yonsei, Gosei, and now Ryokusei. So I was to ask sort of how did you come about the story of, of your grandmother's incarceration and that side of your family? Yeah, I have a terrible memory from when I was a child. So I actually don't even remember if there was a specific moment. I, you know, I remember doing projects about camp in grade school in like third grade and specifically sort of choosing that topic because I knew I had a relation to it. But I don't remember how it would have come up or why, you know, the moment that I learned about it. It was something that I definitely knew growing up growing up. But the the thing that really interested me when I was researching for displacement was just how much my mom, you know, Sansei generation, didn't know about camp. And of course her mother, my grandmother, died when my mom was in in her teens. So there was a lot that was still unsaid. And, you know, I've heard since that a lot of Nisei opened up a lot more after the redress movement, which was after my grandmother died. So I don't know what she might have shared if she had lived long enough. But there were a lot of things that I didn't know growing up because my mom didn't know. And the story, the narrative of camp at the time when I was growing up was very much still kind of this model minority idea of everybody kind of was loyal and they did what they had to do and it was bad, but they got through it and look how successful they are now and sort of that kind of thing. And a very monolithic experience sort of explained in in a lot of the books that I read as a kid. And one of the things that I really was hoping to do with displacement was to show a wide range of the different experiences that people had in camp and the different ways that they reacted to their incarceration and, and why? What was the reason? Because I think, I, I don't know if you also have had this feeling of sort of why didn't, you know, why didn't people protest more? Um, that that feeling of sort of indignation when you're younger and you don't really understand the full risk, I guess. And then getting older, I sort of realized, you know, it was so dangerous to to push back against this. And then you have your family to think about. You have, you know, you're not a U.S. If you're not a U.S. citizen, then you don't have any protections. And even if you are a U.S. citizen, you're being demonstrated that you still have no protections. So there's, you know, that sort of level of risk is hard to comprehend. But I really wanted to demonstrate, I guess, sort of the various life situations that led people to choosing to do what they did in different ways. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest things we talk about being obviously later generations, Yonsei, Gosei, is looking back on what our parents did and what our grandparents did and what our great-grandparents did to sort of see the differences of how what they could and couldn't do back then and how they were able to protest in their own ways and show quote-unquote loyalty, even though we know everyone, there should never have been a question of loyalty, but the ways yeah. that they did it and versus how we did it, we do it now and how we are able to do things that they weren't able to do back then. And I think it's really amazing to be able to now look at those in different lenses and in different ways. And I think, especially with your book and with a lot of other ones coming out now, we get to see more of that side of things now that it's Sansei, Yonsei writers who are telling the stories of their parents and grandparents from a different 
perspective and being able to also contrast that with those Nisei riders. I guess sort of along those lines, how do you how do you sort of compare the work by your work and work of authors now with the the older Sansei and Nisei riders in those first books that came out about the incarceration? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously looking at those books, looking at books like Citizen 13660, like Nono Boys, like the, you know, those sort of foundational texts. It is really interesting because in a lot of ways you read them and you think it's amazing that they were able to speak openly about these sorts of acts of resistance or about these, even about the hardships of camp so soon after. Because, you know, Mina Okubo's book came out and I think in 49. And, you know, it was amazing to me that she was able to, especially as a woman, publish this book that is you know, at times very critical of, of what had been done to her. And, but there's also instances, I think, of what, what I think we have as Yonsei, and even Sansei to a large degree, is more of an understanding of, I guess, the, the American political history and sort of where Japanese Americans fit in the wider story of American racism and of American oppression of minority groups. And you know, there are instances in Citizen 13660 where, you know, there, there are certain elements of anti-Blackness, of, 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 you know, certain prejudices that exist within the Issei and Nisei, and of course, can exist within Sansei and Yonsei and all throughout. But I think, you know, especially with the Sansei starting to sort of link the Japanese American and the Asian American civil rights movement within the broader scope of civil rights in America. I think that is a really powerful tool that we have now as Yonsei is that sort of work that the Sansei did in sort of joining with, you know, other civil rights groups and really working the Japanese American incarceration story into the broader fabric of, you know, American imperialism and American oppression of minority groups. So I think that is, yeah, one of the things that I find most valuable about this sort of later generation distance that we have as Yonsei writers, I guess. I, I love that. And I think it also seems like younger and younger generations also can take a look at the incarceration from an even more multicultural lens as we see more mixed race Nikkei within the community. And that's actually kind of something we talk about or have talked about on the Yonsei podcast. We've kind of leaned into talking about what it is like to be a, a mixed race Japanese American. And I'm really kind of curious what your perspective has been on why or what has motivated you to lean into your Japanese heritage so much, maybe more so or the same amount so of as other parts of your heritage, but what has kind of really stuck out to you or inspired you to really put that forward in your work? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think I've had a very complicated and sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a back and forth relationship with being Japanese American. When I was a kid and when I was in middle school, I remember specifically kind of rejecting certain parts of Japanese uh, pop culture specifically. And I think that was largely in, in response to a lot of the weebs that went to my school. And I I was like, I'm not going to watch anime. I'm not going to do anything like Japanese culturally. I'm just going to be like a normal person. And then, and then, of course, 
when I got older and I sort of had some distance from that, I realized sort of how harmful that was to me as like spiritually. <laughs> and not to mention, I missed out on a lot of great anime because I refused to watch it for that long. But I, you know, and then I, I sort of went through a period where like, I would love to participate in Japanese cultural events or, or learn Japanese, but I don't feel like I am Japanese enough to earn that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what I really found, especially with researching for displacement, as I was sort of going through my family history and, and learning more about it, I found myself really feeling very more comfortable with being Japanese American and, and the difference between that and Japanese, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, that the sort of history and the shared history that we have, especially, you know, being Yonsei or being later generations, people who have had family members that, you know, came in the early 1900s. That's a sort of shared culture that is very distinct from Japanese culture, but is nonetheless its own culture that I, I realized that I felt much more comfortable claiming that than Japanese. And, and the sort of way that the myth of the eternal foreigner kind of had me convinced as, as a kid that if I wasn't Japanese, then I didn't get to be Japanese American. That figuring that out, you know, came too late, but it was a relief. <laughs> definitely. I, I've definitely expressed on a previous podcast not feeling Japanese enough, feeling like there's almost a sense like I have to prove or have to qualify, like you said, as Japanese enough to really feel like I can maybe tell the story or participate in the community or somehow impact the community. So definitely love that you've shared that as well. Yeah, I think it's very common. And, and part of it is a direct result of camp, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know, the dissolution of these Japanese American communities that were so close knit and then suddenly scattered across the country. You know, it made it, I think, much more common in Japanese American communities than in other Asian American communities to have the sort of interracial uh, marriages after that, because there just wasn't that community hub anymore. At least that sort of or not what an anecdotally what I what I notice <laughs> I'd be interested in actually I saw on your website that you also exp I, I kind of share stories through other media so I, I noticed some songwriting in there as well and I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know how you experiment with different media and and what kind of inspires you to choose one over the other or yeah, just kind of your, your process and what you've experimented with. Yeah, I definitely used to be way more into songwriting and music. But uh, I think when I found comics, it really clicked for me that this is the sort of medium that I could most effectively tell a story in. So I, I kind of haven't looked back since. But yeah, I think there's a, a, a great part of growing up is figuring out the the self-expression that works for you. And that can be in so many different ways. And yeah, comics were it for me. I haven't really gone back to songwriting in a long time. <laughs> but yeah, I know there's a lot of Japanese Americans now who are doing great songwriting as well, uh, songs about camp even. So it, it's really cool to see different sort of medium that are uh, exploring the same topic. Yeah, I, I, I definitely asked about the songwriting because I am a songwriter. And so I've, I've tried to write songs that share that story of camp. And it, I, it's always kind of challenging to make sure that 
that feels authentic coming from myself. And even when I weave in stories that I've heard, you know, firsthand, it's still, there's still some sense of wanting to just make sure that I'm presenting it as authentically as I can. Yeah. Which is probably why I haven't released (laughs) many of them. Um, Yeah. I hope you do though. I think, you know, somebody, and I wish I could remember who told me this, but somebody once told me, you know, that kind of worry about, you know, being really authentic and being true to the story that you know is something that white people just don't worry about. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So, uh, I don't know, something to keep in mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we all want to hear Michelle. I mean, I've heard Michelle sing. She's a wonderful <laughs> singer and a wonderful songwriter. Oh, so we would love, would to, love hear to hear that her. one day. But I think one of the overall themes we've sort of talked about is like this idea of being able to share the the story of incarceration and the story of like our, our ancestors and our family history through all these different mediums, which I think is such a fantastic tool, especially now that we have all of these sort of new and emerging technologies and different ways that we can educate kids and and people about these different topics. And I think as we've seen the last two years with COVID is needed Mm -hmm. now more than ever. Yeah. I think even for me being sort of working in education, seeing the different ways that like we can use books and movies and TV shows and now even video games and virtual reality to share these stories and TikTok. Yeah. um, To share these stories (laughs) and to make them easy and digestible and understandable to everyone. And I think it's amazing and fantastic to see. Along those lines of of these new and emerging technologies and wanting to use them and share these stories, but also in sort of what you and Michelle were talking about, about how white audiences and uh, white people don't always have to think about these things is, I guess, sort of how does telling these stories and, and writing these stories sort of fit into the larger world of like white publishing and white authors because Asian Americans and other POCs are still such a small minority of that group. Yeah, you know, it, it is it is kind of double-edged sword, I guess, because I think the story of Japanese American incarceration is one that white audiences kind of expect and kind of expect that to be the, I guess, the beginning and the end of Japanese American history in, in this country. So, you know, it is obviously a hugely important and a personally important story, but it's also one that I think think, you know, I think white audiences kind of, and especially, you know, well-meaning liberal white audiences kind of expect and, and you know, consider part of their sort of white liberal duty to read and be like, ah, oh, too bad. <laughs> but I would love to, you know, see more Asian American and Japanese American authors be able to tell stories that are not just about incarceration, but that are about Japanese American experience and lived experience and, and characters. I don't know. It is it's kind of a weird area to be in where I definitely want to tell this story, but I also know that they want me to keep it to this story. Right. <laughs> Which wow. is actually a comment I've gotten a few times of people saying, you know, I, I love the book, but why did why did she have to mention Trump? Like why did she bring in the the twenty sixteen election? It doesn't seem relevant. And it's like, oh, he missed the point entirely. Yeah. <laughs> We love it when people comment like that. Yeah. People love to to critique work when they don't actually understand the work. Yeah. The sort of idea that history is in the past and doesn't Mm. affect today Mm. is certainly one that I kind of thought people realize is not true Mm. by now, but I guess not. (laughs) Yeah. As someone who majored in history in college, whenever people say that, it just annoys me to no end. 
Uh, I was going to mention kind of sharing a broader spectrum of Japanese American stories. I think that's one of the things that we try to do with this podcast is touching on the past a little bit, but then also bringing that into our current lived experiences and what that's like. So something that at least that's one of our goals to do. So hopefully that we're somewhat successful in that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing that. (laughs) I know I could have, I would have absolutely loved to have this podcast when I was a kid because yeah, it was definitely one of the things because my family, you know, we originally, my grandmother and my great grandparents were from San Francisco and then were displaced to Topaz and then New York. And then my mom came back to Seattle, which was not, you know, where our family was originally from. So we didn't have that connection to the community in Seattle that uh, would have, you know, helped me feel a little bit more connected to, to that part of me. So I remember, you know, seeking out those sort of bits of representation. And Phoebe Heyerdahl from Hey Arnold was like the one that I got. <laughs> yeah, I think the amazing thing, though, is as especially, again, the last two years, but I've seen and met so many people who wanted to be more involved. And we've talked about earlier, wanting to get more involved in sort of finding their way back to the community. And what I've always told people is like, it doesn't matter if you were born into the community, whether that was community org, sports, language school, anything like that, or you just found it because you wanted to, I think the important thing is that you're here and you want to be a part of it. Well, I was just going to say that uh, I I think part of the, what I was talking about earlier about feeling Japanese American, not necessarily Japanese. Mm -hmm. um, I think seeing the activism in the community specifically during the 2016 election, and that has been maintained since organizations like Tsuru for Solidarity and uh, organizations like Densho, I felt like the sort of activist strain of Japanese American community (laughs) building inspired me so much and made me feel like that is one of the more important parts of sort of, I I guess, connecting with that, uh, with that heritage is that if you can make it something that you, that motivates you to do good and to, you know, fight injustice in other realms of, of your life and in other areas of the country, I think that's a good way to feel connected to a community that you don't necessarily feel like you've earned the spot in or whatever. Um, because, you know, you're at the end of the day, you're doing good. <laughs> yeah. And kind of touching back on when you said kind of the Japanese American experience is not monolithic and our stories are not. And that it also just made me think about how even just the community is becoming even less. So I'm just thinking about like how diverse our community is within an and of itself and there are a lot of Japanese Americans now who don't necessarily have a connection to the incarceration there's Shinike there's other Japanese nationals that have come to live in America and so our experience definitely does not have to fully be centered around the incarceration there's so many more opportunities again to tell those stories like you mentioned that are beyond and, and broader than just that but still somewhat recognizing of course our history in the past but just being able to evolve those stories a little bit more as well right and i i also think yeah even even though there was certainly more of a maybe a, a unifying oh what's the word i'm looking for maybe there were fewer differences in the community you know 70 years ago i think it, it it's also so hugely important to 
recognize that there was also a, a very diverse community of Japanese Americans, even in camp. There were Okinawan Americans. There were, you know, people from all different uh, socioeconomic spectrum, and that completely changed their experience of camp. There were, you know, of course, multiracial people in camp as well. And their stories, you know, are so much harder to find. And I wish I could have found more of them. But that is part of like, I think, again, one of the things that are coming out of later generations to, you know, rediscovering and researching these stories is that we're able to really delve into the multifaceted experiences and, and the ways in which, you know, different elements of identity affected your experience at camp. Almost makes me think like now, you know, we can't necessarily assume that anyone who identifies as Japanese American has a, a, a connection or a personal connection to the incarceration. It's just not something that we can presume any, anymore. Yeah. Or not that we, we ever should have at all. Um, but yeah, something just the thought popped into my head. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even back then, because when my grandmother went to New York, you know, there were a lot of Japanese Americans living in New York who had never gone to camp because they weren't on the West Coast. So that was already kind of like a, a sort of community divide, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a big part is, I mean, actually, even today, I was just happened to one of our family friends had a neighbor who was Japanese American and served in the MIS and was from Hawaii. And so I was actually talking to him this morning about his experience. And it's just interesting seeing how different it was for for the Japanese Americans in Hawaii from the West Coast. And then, as you mentioned, on the East Coast, it's just such a different experience. And now that the community has grown even larger and we have more mixed race Japanese Americans and we have more Shin Nikkei and all this, it is so fascinating to see how much the community has grown and changed over the years and how multifaceted it's become. Yeah. And, and just the fact that that we know that difference and we can understand acutely sort of the various ways in which people identify as Japanese American and yet juxtaposing that against the sort of culture in at the time of a Jap as a Jap and sort of that dissonance is so interesting to me that you can so clearly see the ways in which people in power view people are so vastly incorrect and so different from the lived experiences of those people. It just gives you that perspective, I think. I was just going to say our, our, our notion, our, our, maybe our previous understanding of Japanese American history was definitely focused on the West Coast experience or kind of the contiguous United States experience rather than even ignoring stories of Hawaii and ignoring kind of, or maybe not just not recognizing as much stories of, you know, Central American, Japanese Americans, and South American, yeah. Japanese, not and Alaska yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but just kind of piggybacking on kind of these multifaceted stories and how we need to still kind of continue to open up and broaden those stories that we share. Absolutely. Along the same lines of what we're talking about about these new generations and this new sort of idea of what the Japanese American community is, I guess Kiku, do you have any advice for Yonsei, Gosei, Dokusei, Shinike, anybody who wants to not only tell the story of the incarceration, but just tell stories in general. Yeah, I mean, I think really the most important thing is that you really care about what you're about the stories that you're telling or about the communities that you are involved in. And yeah, I, I really recommend if you are feeling a little bit adrift 
just getting involved in something proactive that you, you, you know, that you genuinely care about. I, I, you know, got involved in Sur for Solidarity during the, during the Trump administration, but it's still obviously active um, because there are still camps at the southern border. And, you know, finding something where you realize, you know, whether or not you have a personal connection to camp or you are Japanese American and, you know, know that this was something that was a reality for people who looked like you or had your name or whatever. And, and using that to sort of allow you to, you know, to motivate you to understand, to, to do the work, to make sure that people are not forgetting that this is a terrible thing and that it's not, it's not a one, one time trauma. It is something that you're condemning generations to, to sort of relive over and over again. And yeah, so I think, all that to say, I think uh, getting involved in a community organization that really is proactive and is a cause that you care about and is something that is actually doing good in the world. I think that's, you know, the best way to feel connected and the best way to feel less hopeless about whatever is happening in the world, because uh, it's easy to feel that way. <laughs> Definitely feel all that. And Again, as someone who's tried writing and knowing many other people who have also tried writing down these stories and showing these stories, it's it's nice to to hear that advice and hear the <laughs> hear someone else who's done it before too. Yeah, I wish I had better writing advice. I I I still don't consider myself great at writing, but I will say I do think again that finding the medium that works for you and that feels natural for you is the best way to get through a writing hangup. And then maybe it's not prose or maybe it's not comics, maybe it's songwriting, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, video editing or even sculpture or something like that. But, you know, I know that there are Nikkei who do interpretive dance as a sort of way of expressing it. There's all these different ways. And, and, and the last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, when you, when you look at artifacts made by people in camp because a lot of people you know there weren't jobs there weren't things to do it was in the middle of the desert a lot of people took up art and a lot of people did art for the first time in camp and a lot of people were expressing things or not even consciously expressing things but just you know creating art because that was what there was to do and there's sculptures and there's paintings and you know people wrote poems and i, I think it's sort of inspiring to see the wide range of artistic expression in camp and if that's the story that you want to tell about camp you know seeing the wide range of ways that people were telling their own experiences at the time can inspire you to sort of realize that you know there's not just one way to tell this story now either there's all sorts of artistic outlets that you can you can have plus one to all of that yeah no i think as we're coming up on time, I think that's a great way to leave it off with that piece of advice, Kiku, and thank you so much. And I guess one final thing uh, before we end is, I guess, where can people find you and reach you and see more about your your work and especially displacement? Um, yeah, you can find me. I really only have Twitter that I use actively now, and even that I don't use very much, but it's at Kiku Hughes, K-I-K-U-H-U-G-H-E-S. And that's where all the links are to where you can buy the book. I will say don't buy it from Amazon because Amazon provides technical support uh, and other technologies for modern day concentration camps. So don't buy from Amazon, but buy from your local bookstore. <laughs>
Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kiku, for being our guest today and, and to everyone listening at home for joining us for today's discussion. Yes, and be sure to join us for our next episode in the coming weeks. For season three, we'll be looking to release one to two episodes each month. So make sure to follow at Nikkei Rising on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the release dates, episode titles, descriptions, and guests, as well as any updates on other Nikkei Rising programs. And to listen to all of seasons one and two, you can find the Yonsei podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages website. As always, the Yonsei podcast is sponsored in part by the Minidoka Pilgrimage Planning Committee and is made by Hido Odeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Fedorenko, Johnny Narita, Matthew Wisely, and Sashi Koide, with theme music by Michelle Heckert. This has been the Yonsei podcast, and it's been Yonsei.